0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdill. But first, your true crime headlines. A suspect has been identified in the 2007 disappearance of Madeline McCann, who vanished while vacationing with her parents at a seaside resort in Portugal. McCann's parents were at a tapas bar with friends, while three-year-old Madeline and her younger siblings slept in their vacation apartment about 100 yards away. The adults made periodic checks on the sleeping children, and on one of those regular check-ins, Kate McCann found little Madeline missing from the apartment. Early missteps by Portuguese authorities derailed the investigation, and the case grew cold despite international attention. Now, more than 13 years after the little girl's disappearance, police have identified a convicted sex offender and career criminal as their prime suspect. The man, 43-year-old Christian Bruckner, is a German national and from 1994 to 2007, he lived in the Portuguese vacation district where Madeline went missing. According to German records, Bruckner has 17 previous convictions, including for theft, forgery, drug dealing, firearms offenses, rape, and sexual abuse of children. Bruckner is currently behind bars in Germany serving time for a drug-related offense. Since becoming the prime suspect in the disappearance of Madeline McCann, Bruckner has been investigated for possible connections to three other unsolved cases involving missing or murdered children, taking place between 1996 and 2015. A man who spent nearly three decades in prison, most of those on death row, has been released after prosecutors determined that he is most likely innocent of the crime for which he was convicted. Walter Ograd walked out of the Pennsylvania's Phoenix Correctional Institution after his charges were reduced and he was granted bail for the 1998 murder of four-year-old Barbara Jean Horn. Horn was found stuffed into a box and left on the curbside not far from her Philadelphia home. She had head wounds and had been partially wrapped in a garbage bag. Ograd, then 23, lived nearby at the time of the child's death. He was arrested four years later, and according to his attorneys, he was railroaded into a false confession by Philadelphia police. That confession included incorrect details about the crime, including the little girl's cause of death. Additionally, a review by the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office Found violations of Ograd's right to due process of law, and that prosecutors had withheld potentially helpful evidence. The judge said she was not able to throw out the case completely, but instead lowered the charge to third degree murder, allowing Ograd to post bail and be released. Prosecutors then filed a request to decline to retry him, which is now pending. According to his attorneys, Ograd's first stop after his release would be a backyard barbecue hosted by a family member. It is unclear if police have any other suspects in the death of Barbara Jean Horn. Prosecutors acknowledge that there is no physical evidence linking Ograd to her murder. A Southern California police officer has been arrested on suspicion of raping a teenage girl, according to authorities. 28-year-old Nicholas Sean Stark was arrested and charged with suspicion of rape of a minor by intoxication, according to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department. At the time of his arrest, Stark was an officer with the Fontana Police Department. However, the assault allegedly took place before he joined the police force, according to Sheriff's officials. Fontana's police chief, William Green, released a statement explaining that he was unable to immediately fire Stark, based on California law. Instead, Stark was placed on paid leave, which Green called disgusting, before promising to work to fire Stark as quickly as possible. Chief Green said Fontana police learned of the incident when one of the department's captains became aware of a post on social media from a young woman indicating she had been a victim of sexual assault and that the culprit was a Fontana police officer. This post led Green to personally request an investigation by the sheriff's office. Stark was booked into the West Valley Detention Center after his arrest and posted bail the next day. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, a murder case the town of Medford, Oregon will not soon forget. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, a tale of love, Lies and murder. Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdill met in the early 1980s in Colorado when Michelle took a job in the doctor's office where Roxanne worked as a nurse. Roxanne, a divorced mother of two, was drawn to Michelle's spitfire nature and strong will. Michelle admired Roxanne's warmth and quiet generosity. A friendship blossomed and soon the women fell in love committing to lifetime partnership. Eager for a fresh change, the couple decided to move near Michelle's mother in Medford, Oregon, a sleepy southern town surrounded by mountains. There, they started a property management company together and hired Roxanne's daughter, Lori, to work in the office. They swiftly became involved in the community and spoke out against two major anti-gay rights initiatives in the early 90s, both of which were only narrowly defeated. They were tremendously brave in quiet and unobtrusive ways, a friend of the couple later told the LA Times. They weren't hugely public or anything, but they were eloquent one-on-one. Respected as activists, the women appeared on TV and at fundamentalist churches, sharing the message that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And when two of their friends were dying of AIDS... Roxanne and Ellis visited them daily to provide meals, adjust IVs, change bedpans, and tend to yard work. By December of 1995, things were going really well for the women, personally and professionally. They adored their children, grandkids, and each other. And their business was going well. If only they had known how tragically insidious a newcomer to their circles would turn out to be. On December 4th, days before a historic windstorm equaling a Category 2 hurricane hit Oregon, something far worse destructed the close-knit family. That morning, Roxanne left for an 11 a.m. property showing appointment and never returned to the office. When she missed an important appointment that afternoon, her daughter Lori feared something horrible had happened. But then Lori heard from Michelle, who told her that Roxanne's car needed a jump and she was on her way to help her. After Michelle left to meet Roxanne at the property she'd been scheduled to show that morning, though, she too became unreachable. As another hour passed, Lori couldn't wait any longer. She drove to the duplex and spotted her mother's truck. Once again, her sense of relief was fleeting. As she pulled up, beside Roxanne's truck, it sped away. Certain her mother wasn't driving, she headed to the duplex, finding the front door unlocked, something very uncharacteristic of her mom, and the building was empty. Immediately, she phoned the police. Deputy Chief Tim Doney spoke about the case in the Canadian crime documentary, Very Bad Man, and said he sensed something was off from the get-go. He agreed to look around the duplex, finding no signs of a struggle. Even so, he suspected foul play. And because the women were active in the gay and lesbian community, he wondered if they had been victims of a hate crime. These weren't women who just disappear, he said. Detectives questioned people throughout the neighborhood to see if anyone had seen or heard anything unusual that might help them lead to the missing pair. Next door to the duplex lived a woman and her 15-year-old son. The boy recalled encountering someone he described as a white male adult on the property. He said the man told him he would soon be their next-door neighbor. The boy also heard the garage door open and close and vehicles driving in and out of the driveway earlier that day. His mother too had seen the man walking along the perimeter of the duplex. Based on the boy's description of the man, police created a composite sketch. The suspect looked to be in his late 20s. He had straight hair, a long nose, and wore square, wire-rimmed glasses. Michelle's planner showed only the name of the showing, no client, which seemed odd. She had received a phone call from a motel earlier that morning, but because the establishment's phone system was broken, the owners couldn't verify which room the call came from. A fingerprint found on the garage seemed promising, but it pulled up no matches in the database. As the search continued, gaining widespread local and national media attention, Lori felt frantic. She started listening to police scanners, hoping to hear of any possible break in the case first. Finally, one came. Someone had spotted a vehicle that matched the description of her mother's truck, She raced to the scene, saw the truck, and darted toward it. As she did, a police officer grabbed her. She would not want to see inside that truck, the complete horror of it. The cargo bed appeared to be full of shipping cartons and a mattress. Around the perimeter of the mattress, detectives could see part of a torso, an arm, and a head. They quickly confirmed that the two bodies found belonged to Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdil. Lori heard the news first and would spend months worrying about their final minutes, what they had seen and experienced. One can only hope that shock took over, protecting their minds somewhat from the harsh reality of one of the women having to witness her partner's death while anticipating her own. Once the missing person's case became one of double homicide, investigators worked even harder to find the perpetrator. Oregon reporter Libby Dowsett covered the discovery of Roxanne's truck as she honed in on the man who had called the police, a cable installer named Jerry Walker. Many people were struck by the similarities between him and the suspect sketch. But Walker had a solid alibi, and police quickly ruled him out. Tips continued to flood in from people who believed they could help investigators catch this killer. One in particular could not be ignored. A woman named Darlene, who requested anonymity back then, called police suggesting her own son. 27-year-old Robert Ackermont may have been involved. In fact, she believed he was the killer. She later told local reporters that she called police because she, quote, had to look God in the face adding that she would do anything in her power to ensure that no more people were hurt. Her son, she said, was sick. She showed police labels from shipping containers they had used to move, which matched those covering the women's remains. Police soon found more connections between the man and the slain women. Most notably, Roxanne had showed him the very apartment they had disappeared from just two weeks before the murders. And on the morning of December 4th, he had gone to his brother's motel, the same one Roxanne received a phone call from. The next morning, he packed a bag and took off, claiming that he was sick of the dreary Oregon weather. Police were able to find a fingerprint on file from a job he had applied for back in California. When lab results showed a matched prints found at the crime scene, they had all they needed to make an arrest. While making plans to do so, They learned that Ackermont had just been involved in a botched burglary. Under arrest, as authorities questioned him, he confessed to the two murders and a third. He said he killed Scott George, a 23-year-old man who had been missing for three months. He was last seen at a bar with Ackermont after Scott had agreed to show him around town and introduce him to people. His father had dated Ackermont's mom, Darlene, for a time. Scott was known to be kind, the type of person who would do most anything for anyone, including help someone out, even if that person was a bit rough around the edges. His loved ones believed that that strength should not have led to the end of him. After police questioned the suspect three separate times about Scott's disappearance, he and Darlene packed up and moved to Medford. By that point, he told his father that he had killed Scott George. When Ackermont confessed, he said he shot Scott George once just to see what it was like, and a second time because he was pissed about a mess he made in his car. Still sickeningly high on those crimes, the killer told police, he set his sights on a new mission to kidnap a property manager and get them to write him checks for the cleaning or security deposit account. That's when he met Roxanne Ellis. The morning of her murder, he said, he held her at gunpoint and demanded the money. She told him there was no money in that property's account. He must have forced her to call Michelle and ask her to bring him funds, believing that once they paid him, he would let them go. While he claimed he never planned to kill them, evidence told another story. Investigators discovered that he had prepared a kill kit containing plastic gloves, a knife, handcuffs and a gun, before assaulting Roxanne. When Libby Dowsett later asked him if he had premeditated the murders, he said, the perfect crime has no witnesses. He also said that it crossed his mind that they were lesbians. Later, in an interview with the San Francisco Examiner, Acremont said he tried to rob the women because he was frustrated about finding a new job after quitting a position at a railway, and that he had recently broken up with his girlfriend because he couldn't afford to visit her in Las Vegas. Later, that woman would testify that he merely spent thousands of dollars at the club where she danced, bought her expensive gifts, and occasionally paid for her dinner. It was a purely financial relationship, she said. He was a client. She also testified that he put a gun to her head in his truck at one point and told her that he had murdered people there. When she told Vegas police that, they didn't believe her. Ackermont also told the examiner, quote, I don't care for lesbians. I couldn't help but think that she's 54 years old and had been dating that woman for 12 years. Isn't that sick? That's someone's grandma, for God's sake. While it remains unknown whether the women were targeted solely because of their sexual orientation, he was definitely homophobic, and investigators treated it as a hate crime. The killer later revealed that he killed Scott George partly because he had made a pass at him. When a deputy arrived at Lori Ellis's door to let her know that they caught the man who stole Roxanne and Michelle's lives and devastated their families, she said she was ecstatic. When she learned he was sentenced to death, she said she hoped he would experience the same torment he had put her mothers through. He was sentenced to death for the murder of Scott George II. Ackermont died behind bars, reportedly of natural causes, in 2018. In 1996, an LGBT advocacy and education center opened in Ashland, Oregon, in honor of Roxanne and Michelle. It was called the Abdel Ellis Lambda Community Center and stayed open for 14 years. The center served as a place for community and connection and ran women's support groups. When it closed due to lack of funding, the Lotus Rising Project, a youth-run social justice nonprofit group, took over its outreach. Something Roxanne and Michelle who cherished children and equality and each other, would probably appreciate. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.